welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, Darcy, with me, live and fresh and ready to go. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Darcy is, she has a little topic here today that she kind of wanted to talk about. Why don't you throw us in and let us know what you're doing? Yeah, so you know I love a good disappearance story, and so this is... One of my favorite shows on Investigation Discovery is that show called Disappeared, and it's just about all these people who have just kind of gone missing off the grid, and there's really no explanation for it. Um, And this is one of the ones I saw very early on, and it always caught my attention, and I always have kind of gone back to it. So I wanted to cover this. This is the disappearance of Terrence Williams and Felipe Santos, because there's some hinky things going on that we're going to talk about. For reals. So... 27-year-old Terrence Williams moved to Naples, Florida in 2002 from Chattanooga. He wanted to be close to his mother who had just moved there, and he was also looking for work because he wanted to be able to provide child support for his children. He had four kids, three of which were in Chattanooga, and then he had one, a newborn, that was with him in Florida. So he actually, at the time, was working two jobs. He had a job working construction, and then he also got another job working with Pizza Hut. And he did have a car, but he had recently had his driver's license suspended for a DUI back in Chattanooga. So he often relied on his roommate and his mom to take him to and from work. That was kind of really his only means of transportation, right? And because he had a suspended driver's license, he also had a you know, the registration on his car had expired. I guess he just maybe didn't renew it because his driver's license was suspended. So it just wasn't going to be something to pay for at that it's time, like right? It's a vicious cycle. And then it just gets the pack exactly. up the fines and the fees and the late fees. And before long, you can't afford to do anything with it. Exactly. Especially when you're trying to, you're working two jobs and, you know, and then you don't even have means to get to, to and from work. It's and a whole, it's, you know, that it's like you said, or supporting it's your children, you're going to choose your children. Mm-hmm. Of course. So on the night of Sunday, January 11th, 2004, Terrence was invited to a work party from some of his friends that he worked with at Pizza Hut. And he tried to convince his roommate to go with him. You know, he needed a ride, you know, but the roommate didn't want to go. So Terrence ends up deciding to actually risk it and he's going to drive himself. Okay. Okay. So the, the next morning, Terrence's roommate wakes up and Terrence isn't home. And, but the roommate's not particularly worried because, you know, maybe he stayed at the party or got a ride from somebody else or this, that, you know, any number of reasons why an adult man doesn't come home. He met some hot girl. Woo-hoo. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, he notices, though, that he had missed some phone calls from a number that he didn't recognize. And then the calls came at about 4 a.m., So that's a little unusual. So he calls the number back, and it is actually a female coworker from Pizza Hut who's at the party. And she said that Terrence had left the party around 5 or 6. So, like, it's possible she used his phone to call for a ride or something. He didn't want to drive, right? Okay. So she didn't know where he went, though, but she saw him leave the party around 5 or 6 a.m. By Tuesday, though... The roommate still had not heard from Terrence, so he decides to email Terrence's mother just to say, hey, have you heard from Terrence? I haven't seen him in a couple days. And that's when she starts to get concerned because she also hasn't talked to her son. 
And so they try calling his friends. They call his work. You know, nobody's heard from him. He hasn't shown up to work. So then they start going through the usual things. They call the jails, you know, to see if maybe he got him picked up for driving without a license. Nobody had brought him in. They called hospitals, but nobody matching that description had been brought in under John Doe or anything like that. So now they're getting a little worried. And they call his work, and they find out that he actually hadn't been at work in two days, and he missed picking up his last two paychecks. What? So this is when they file a missing persons report with Collier County Sheriff's Office. Collier County is where Naples is. Okay. And so at first, the police tell his mom that, you know, he's an adult. He can go missing anytime he wants if he just doesn't want to be found. So... You know, basically, it's not a police matter. But if you don't still don't hear from him in a couple of days, come back, you know, and, and let us know. And so because she still hadn't heard from him and because of the number of phone calls that the family is making to the police department, they're making these phone calls both from Florida and his family back in Tennessee. They decided they're going to look into it a little bit more. And Terrence's aunt in Tennessee is actually able to locate the car and it's not explained how she's able to find this information out because she's in Tennessee. So I don't know how she finds this out, but she finds out that his car was towed on January 12th from a local cemetery. And so they contact the tow company and the tow company says that they were called by Collier County Sheriff's Department to tow the car. And the tow ticket is signed by a sheriff deputy named Steve Calkins. Okay. So Terrence's mom calls back call the sheriff's department back but they don't have any information because there's no incident report filed about the car so heck so whatever he did you know he calls in to have this car towed but then he doesn't come back and file an incident report Mm. and this is when it gets kind of weird because the family's next move is to contact the cemetery and see if there's any employees that saw anything happen okay all right and the witnesses from the cemetery say they saw a police car pull Terrence over and ask for identification, which obviously Terrence doesn't have because he has a suspended license. And some of the witnesses say that this deputy put Terrence in the back of his patrol car mm-hmm. and he patted him down and puts him back in the back of the car. But nobody reported any kind of confrontation. It wasn't like a violent thing. He just pats him down, puts him in the back of the car. Right. So... The deputy then asked the employees at the cemetery if he can leave the car there until he gets back and he can have it towed. And according to these witness accounts, Deputy Calkins comes back alone between 15 minutes and an hour later. Witness reports are kind of iffy on that timeline. He comes back alone, Hmm. gets into Terrence's car, which had been pulled into a parking spot, right? He moves his car to where it's obstructing traffic he basically puts it on the side of the road but kind of pulled into the road a little bit so the cop did this yeah that's what the witnesses say and then the car keys are found on the ground beside the car okay and then the car gets towed away because it's obstructing traffic right huh and so the Williams family repeatedly calls the Collier County Sheriff's Department because they want to talk to Deputy Calkins to ask you know If he was driving with expired tags and with a suspended license, why wasn't he arrested? Right. You know? Or why wasn't even an incident report filed? Seriously. But they could never seem to get Deputy Calkins on the phone until finally 
the sheriff's department decides they're going to call them in themselves and they're going to get to the bottom of it. Okay. So the dispatcher gets him on the phone around January 16th, so four days after Terrence goes missing. Okay. And she asks if he remembers towing a vehicle on the 12th. He says no. What? She says, well, the family is saying that the vehicle was near a cemetery and witnesses say you arrested the driver, but I don't have you arresting anybody. And Calkins responds with, I haven't arrested nobody. And he claims to have no memory of pulling this car over, putting the driver in the backseat of his patrol car, and having the driver's car towed. No well, memory of anything. There's all these anything. witnesses, and it's, it's, was it recorded at all? Was there a dash cam or anything like that? No, because this is 2004. Okay, okay. So there's just witnesses, and, I mean, he signed the tow ticket, so, like, you know, that's documented too, right? right. So, But he has, he has no memory of this. This is just four days later. Hmm. So Get that man some after, ginkgo biloba for crying out yeah. loud. So after some more pressure from the family, he is asked to submit an incident report. And so on January 19th, which is a week later, he writes that on 1204 at approximately 1215 while on patrol, I observed an older model white Cadillac appear that appeared to be having problems and I motioned for the driver to pull over. The driver pulls into the parking lot of the Memorial Garden Cemetery. I yelled to the driver if he was having trouble and he said yes. The driver said he just bought the car and it was not running right and he said that he was now late for work and he asked if I could please give him a ride. I told him I'd call a cab for him but he said he could not afford a cab. He asked me again for a ride so that he would not lose his job and that it was just up the up to the Circle K at this next intersection. Mm-hmm. I opened my rear door and told him to get in, and I gave him the ride. Once at the Circle K, I dropped him off at, at the south side of the building. I told him he better make plans right away to get his car, and he said that he would take care of it, and he thanked me. I asked him for his name, and he said Terrence. I also warned him that his tag was expired, but he said the receipt and proper registration were in the glove box if I wanted to check it out. I told him I would talk to him later about that, and I left. I drove back over to the cemetery to let their office know about the car and once there I checked the glove box and it was empty and I noticed the keys on the floorboard when I checked the dispatch the tag returned expired in 2001 unknown make model I now phoned the circle k and asked for Terrence and the clerk that answered the phone said she didn't know any Terrence Mm -hmm. I now felt that Terrence had deceived me I now called for a wrecker thinking that the Cadillac was now abandoned and maybe even stolen so then he has the car towed, and he goes back to the Circle K to search for Terrence, but he couldn't find him. Okay. That's his official report that he submits one week after this. Okay. So at first, he doesn't remember towing this car at all. Now he seems to have a whole different memory of the scenario, what ha- everything happened that day. And it seems pretty detailed, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, going back to the car, checking the glove box, giving this guy a ride, doing all this, that, and the other, seems like a lot of legwork for a cop who didn't even want to arrest him or write an incident report right? in the first place. Yeah. Hmm. So the Williams family, then, they go to the Circle K to see if they can look at the surveillance video. And they don't see him on the tape at all. They don't see Terrence. They don't see Terrence on the tape at so all. So he never got dropped off, like the officer said. Apparently not. Mm-hmm. Police also go to the Circle K to look at the tape as well, and they also ask if any employees had seen Terrence, and they don't see him on the tape, and no employees remember seeing him getting out of a car. All right. Mm-hmm. So the nice thing about this is that the Collier County Sheriff's Department has put all of their files related to this case 
um, on their website. I guess this is everything that has been requested through FOIA requests. So all this is on their website. We're going to link to it in the show notes so you can all read it for yourselves. Okay. Terrence Williams' missing persons report is 180 pages long, so just know that going in. It's a lot. But So there's a lot of information in these reports so that didn't make it onto Wikipedia or in this disappeared episode. So, for example, on January 19th, Terrence's stepfather goes to the Circle K. So he goes to the store around 6 a.m., and he says that his son is missing and that a Collier County Sheriff's deputy said that he had dropped him off at the store. He said that he knows that the Sheriff's deputy killed his son and that he knows that the Collier County Sheriff's Department killed his son, left him under a log to rot, and then they were going to feed him to the gators. What the heck? This is what the stepfather is telling the, the employee of the Circle K. He believed that there's a bunch of lies that, and the sheriff's office was covering things up and he was going to get the NAACP involved and he wanted to review the, the surveillance tapes. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Circle K surveillance so, tapes. Yes. Okay. So that's about 6 a.m. At about 8 or 9 a.m. that same day, Steve Calkins goes to the store and asks if he can speak with Terrence. He said... He also said a last name, but this person at Circle K can't remember what the last name was. She said nobody by that name worked at the store, and that, and, and then Calkin said, well, I was told Terrence worked there. So then what happens is when the stepfather goes to the Circle K, she, he leaves some flyers, mm-hmm. some missing persons flyers with them to put up at the store. And so the employee then points to one of these missing persons flyers and says, is this who you're talking about? And she reported that Deputy Calkins appeared to be in shock when he saw that picture. Okay. So there's also some unverified sightings of Terrence after the 12th when he goes missing. From that same January 19th report of the investigating officer, he says that he makes contact with an employee of the Circle K who had seen him before. She was familiar with Terrence. Mm -hmm. And she says that she saw him on Saturday, January 17th at Walmart. Okay, so she actually knows who Terrence was. She'd seen him in Circle K, and she says, five days after he, uh, after the 12th, after this whole incident, I saw him at Walmart. Okay. She also says that on, she saw him again about a week later in the same Walmart. So if you read this, this missing persons report, there's a bunch of people who call in and say that they've seen Terrence or seen somebody matching his description. But this, these are the only ones I've included because this is the only person who was familiar with Terrence before he went missing. Okay, so, but I do want to say that none of these reports have been verified that it actually was Terrence. Okay. okay. So, in the disappeared episode, you can see how awesome Terrence's mother is. I mean, she's proactive. She's questioning everything that Collier County Sheriff's Department are telling her about uh, Deputy Calkins and what in his report, and she ends up actually filing a complaint against him, and an internal affairs investigation is launched. Okay. And Collier County Sheriff's Department does the right thing, and they get Florida Department of Law Enforcement and the FBI to conduct their own independent investigation so it doesn't look like they're trying to cover anything up, right? Okay. Which is what you do when, another, when you have a complaint against a cop. You don't want to be investigating your own people. But there also may be another reason that they brought in these other agencies so quickly. Three months before Terrence Williams disappeared, another very similar complaint was filed against Deputy Calkins. Mm-hmm. So on October 14th, 
Felipe Santos and his brother Jorge Santos Martinez were driving toward Naples to go to work when they got into a minor car accident. Felipe was an undocumented immigrant from Mexico who did not speak English, mm-hmm. and he was driving. And do you want to guess who the responding officer to the car crash was? Mm, officer Calkins. Yep. And I mean, the thing Calkins, is, these people normally don't do this one time. It's usually not a one-time thing. It's usually a pattern. Like, very rarely mm-hmm. is it the first and only time one of these types of individuals does something like this. Well, and at this point, though, we don't know what this is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, he's fishy. I think but we don't know what what happened. Want to and historically have wanted to think that the police are good, that they're here to protect us, that you mm-hmm. know their their role is to serve and protect. But as mm-hmm. we have seen in recent times, that is not always the case. And that is not to say that all police officers or all law enforcement are bad. But I think we have come to see that. A few are not good people. So Yeah. And I do think it's important to note that I did mention Felipe Santos was an undocumented immigrant from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Terrence Williams is African American. Okay, so we've so got I just, two people I, that is of important color to who yep. are in a police stop type of a situation. Right. And Officer Hawkins so, is a white officer. Yes. Okay. So, according to Calkins, he actually did fill out an incident report for this one. Felipe identified himself as the driver, but he didn't have a driver's license. So, Calkins puts him in the back of the squad car. Okay. So, in the U.S., you must have a legal driver's license in all 50 states to operate a motor vehicle. If you fail to obtain a license and can get caught without one when you're behind the wheel, your first offense will likely be a misdemeanor, which can carry heavy penalties. If you decide not to get a license mm-hmm. and get caught the second time, the penalty becomes more harsh and can result in the receipt of a felony. You will get fines, and you can face license suspension in the future. You can also get picked up and arrested for driving Okay, no so one. either way, though, they can't just ticket you and let you leave. And let you go on to drive your car, right? Correct. So the other driver of the car, though, the woman that that Felipe Santos hit, has a different interpretation of what happens. She says that as soon as Calkins pulls up, he's agitated. And he says, I'm sick of pulling people over who don't have licenses. So the last thing we know that happens is because Felipe's brother was with him, we know that Felipe is put in the back of the car and Calkins drives off. Okay. And this is the last time he is seen. So Felipe's family thinks, you know, okay, he's been picked up for driving without a license. We're going to call the jail. We're going to bail him out. You know, it's just going to be simple. Right. But when they call around to the local jails, there's no record of Felipe being dropped off or being arrested. Um, It's kind of interesting to note as well that if you tell them that you forget your license or forgot it at home, they can give you a ticket and let you go. Yes. So they have that option. And clearly, if this person in this case said it, he didn't get that option. Well, he said, I I don't know if he said I just don't have a license or if he said I'd left my license like I don't know if he had the wherewithal to be like oh I left my license at home right and then as well officers if they suspect the commission of some other crime which Mm -hmm. could be the case if there's an illegal person Mm -hmm. in the car then they can detain you and take you down to the station but they have to have probable and, and reasonable suspicion that there's something else going on in order to do that which yeah and yeah. given that Felipe didn't speak English, mm-hmm. 
I mean, we all know that that could have been the probable cause that the police needed. This is 2004. I mean, right. This is what you know. This is when we start cracking down on undocumented immigrants. You know. But the uh, other guy wasn't like even just, driving the car, right? He was just a passenger in the vehicle. Like what? He wasn't doing anything wrong. Why did he even have to? Well, Felipe was driving the car. The one that didn't speak English. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Sorry. I thought it was the other no, way no, around. No. My, my apologies. No, Felipe was the one driving. So, okay. So they can't find any, any record of his arrest or being in any of the local jails. So they contact Collier County Sheriff's Department, obviously, and they file a missing persons report. And two weeks later, they get a copy of the incident report that Calkins filled out because I said, again, mm-hmm. he did actually do an incident report for this one. Wow. He says that I couldn't find the actual incident report on the Collier County Sheriff's Department website, but it, parts of it are mentioned in the missing persons report. So he says that he was going to arrest Felipe, but because Felipe was such a nice, polite young man, he wasn't going to arrest him. He was just going to give him a ride. So he didn't want to leave the scene, obviously, because he didn't want to have Felipe get back in the car and drive. So he gives him a ride. Do you want to guess where he gives him a ride to? Circle K. That's Circle K. (laughs) Yeah. So this is directly from the missing persons report. The investigating officer reports on 11.403 at 1 o'clock. I made contact with Deputy Sheriff Calkins. He advised that he had responded to the traffic crash and that he transported Felipe to the Circle K store um, because he was going to have the clerk at the store translate. However, he says he was able to attain the information he needed without translation. So he just drops him off at the Circle K so he could use a telephone and wait for a ride and that he had no further contact with Felipe after he dropped him off at the store. And like the clerk at the Circle K is the only one who knows Spanish who can translate to. It's, just it's like... probably it probably was the, the closest location. Of, to where this happened, I'm not sure. Okay. That's my guess. Is it just, just seems the like this location. guy is all over the place. He 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 likes the Circle K clearly. <laughs> so, Felipe's family files a complaint against Calkins, and because this happened, this is the first of the complaints. The investigation was handled just internally, and after the initial investigation, he was actually cleared of any wrongdoing in how he handled this incident. Off the so, officer was. Yeah, so he they basically say, okay, would another officer have done that? Probably not, but technically he didn't do anything wrong because according to him, he takes this guy to the Circle K, drops him off to let him use a phone, and he doesn't know what happened after that. That's his story, okay? I mean, how many complaints do there have to be against an officer before... But remember, this is the first one. Okay. This is the first one, okay. so this is October of 2003. Okay. So Felipe's family is informed of the Collier County Sheriff's Department's decision to clear him of any wrongdoing on January 9th, 2004. Okay. Terrence Williams goes missing after an interaction with Deputy Calkins, supposedly at that same Circle K, 72 hours later. Wow. Okay. That's not very so long. nine, yeah, so nine days after Terrence Williams goes missing, mm-hmm. CCSD searches um, his car for evidence, the Cadillac, and according to the disappeared episode, they did find some trace evidence, but they're not telling us what that is to maintain the integrity of the investigation. Okay. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. They're protecting their own. Well, this is the Terrence Williams 
disappearance now. So this is when they've invited the third parties in, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and the FBI. So they want to make sure everything is above board. Okay. So a month after Terrence's disappearance, Calkins is asked to come in for an interview and a polygraph about his interaction. So the audio files of the polygraph are also available on the Sheriff's Department website. And according to them, he passes this first polygraph. I didn't listen to this polygraph, so I don't know what question. Yeah. So I don't know what questions they asked him about on this first polygraph. But according to them, he passes it. Yeah, but, I'm sure he knows all the tips and the tricks to pass as well. Investigate. So investigators, then they search his car, the patrol car, for any evidence, including bodily fluids. They do luminal testing and all of that. Right. And his car is immaculately clean. Squeaky clean. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Huh. Which, you know. For a police when car? When is a car? I mean. Yeah. When is any car squeaky clean? I, I Except don't know. for maybe My a rental car. car is literally like yeah. you could eat off the floor. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> so there are some people who do keep their yeah. cars immaculate, but this just seems very suspicious. Right. So they also surreptitiously place a GPS on the car, on the patrol car, because mm-hmm. they want to track Steve Calkins's whereabouts. Okay. See if he goes to any places that maybe they need to start checking out with some search and rescue dogs. They. So, Although so it I, seems I, a bit late for that because... Well, I give them credit because they actually are not trying to cover anything up for him. After the second disappearance, you know, right. they're actually like, this is weird. Bare men's, we know that these two guys went missing after their last interaction was with you and they were last seen in the back of your patrol car. But on so the other like, hand, if you get warning that you're being investigated, you're not going to do anything. You're going to keep your nose clean especially a law enforcement officer, because you know that they're watching you and that you could get in very serious trouble. So you're not going to do anything. I'm not sure how, if he knew they were watching him because they, they voluntarily bring him in for the the questioning, the interview and the polygraph. They tell him he passes and then they secretly put this GPS in there. So I don't know how much he knows about how much they're following him. So he maybe thinks he's all in the clear. Yeah. So that's what they're, it seems like that's kind of what they were hoping for. But and they know, actually, just being, you know, trying to put myself in his place, I would be like, okay, I need to like mind my P's and Q's for a while. Because right. I'm probably like I'm going straight to home, straight to work. Yeah. That's it. For yeah. a while. So they actually do identify 12 areas that they search with dogs, but they don't find anything. Mm-hmm. So as the investigation into the Terrence Williams' disappearance continued, some discrepancies are found with his story, with Calkins' story, right? Surprise, so surprise. <laughs> they check his phone calls on the day that Terrence went missing, mm-hmm. and they find that right after he gets back to the cemetery— after, quote-unquote, taking Terrence to the Circle K, quote-unquote, he makes a call to his friend in dispatch. And he says, I got a homie Cadillac on the side of the road here, nobody around. The tag comes back to nothing. It's a big old white piece of junk Cadillac. The dispatcher asks if it's blocking the roadway, and Calkins responds, I'm towing it. Maybe he's out there in the cemetery. He'll come back, and his car will be gone. Like, they're laughing about this. Okay. Jesus. So, a couple things. Calkins already knows that the driver is not in the cemetery. Yeah. Okay. And also, the car was moved by Calkins to block the road. We According know that from the witness statements. Yeah. So, he's telling this, his buddy at dispatch that the car is abandoned, even though he knows Terrence isn't in the cemetery. And 
Calkins himself says that he moved the car to the side of the road so that it would be easier for it to be towed. That's mm. what he tells investigators when they ask questions later. So he's later. got literally like 400 different stories that he's telling different people, depending on his mood yep. and the time of day and how much he remembers. And that phone call is the day of the disappearance. So that's probably, you know, he's definitely lying about something at the beginning, right? Yeah. From the jump. So about 20 minutes after that call, he calls back and he asks for a background check on Terrence. And this is from the missing persons report. The investigator writes that he talks with a corporal and the corporal states that either on, that on the day of the traffic stop, with Williams, Calkins comes back and asks him to look someone up in the computer and that Calkins provides him with the name and date of birth of the subject, full name and date of birth. Mm. All right. And here's the thing about this. When he first sets, writes the initial incident report, he says he doesn't know Terrence's last name. Seriously? Yep. But when he calls 20 minutes after he gets back from quote unquote taking him to the circle k he knows his last name and date of birth hmm. and terrence didn't have a driver's license so the only way he could have gotten that information is from terrence terrence had to have told him his name and date of birth yeah okay so in april of 2004 Calkins takes another polygraph and this time the questions are specifically about what may have happened after Terrence Williams was pulled over. He bombs it. Okay. He doesn't have any answers to what happened after he pulled Terrence over. He says he didn't see him after he drops him off at the Circle K. He doesn't know what may have happened to him after. He failed all those questions. And here's the, the other thing I found in the missing persons report that isn't on Wikipedia or anything else mm -hmm. that I found really interesting is the investigating officer in the missing persons report says that on June 3rd of 2004, he receives a report listing the citation numbers of all the traffic citations written by Calkins for 2003 and 2004. And he also received copies of each of the citations written. And that citation number 9661 was written on 1704, five days before the encounter with Terrence Williams. Citation number 9663 was written on 113.04, the day after the encounter with Terrence Williams. Citation number 9662 is unaccounted for and was never turned in by Calkins. Hmm. So it looks like he wrote a ticket and then never turned it in. Why would he do that? Well, it looks like he, it, he could have started a ticket and then decided he wasn't going to just issue a citation. He was going to do something else. Because maybe the guy was, he said something or he was irritated by what he said or like what? That's the thing is we don't know. We don't know anything that happened after of course, he gets pulled over. Of course, answer any questions. Right. So at this point, Calkins stops cooperating with the investigation. And in August of 2004, the internal affairs investigation closed. All of the complaints against Calkins were sustained, and he was fired for noncompliance with rules and regulations, untruthfulness, and conduct of becoming of an officer. But no criminal charges? No. They don't have enough evidence to—they don't even have enough evidence to search his house. So okay. they don't have enough probable cause to charge him with anything. Right. And so in 2011, 
The missing persons report into Terrence Williams is updated to state that his mother has provided mitochondrial DNA, which is going to be entered into the FBI National Missing Persons DNA database. And it's going to be periodically searched for any potential matches. None have been found. Not surprising. Like, if this is a police officer that's familiar with this sort of thing, he probably knows plenty of places to hide a body. Yep. So he eventually sells his house. And Steve Calkins does. And the latest information indicates that he's living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And the police actually do ask the people who move into the to Steve Calkins' house if they can search it. Uh-huh. And they did send some, infer- some evidence to the FBI lab. Uh-huh. And the last thing on the missing persons report about this was that that evidence was returned untested. And there's no explanation for why. What? There's no information. There's no explanation for what that evidence was or explanation to why it was untested that's just what the missing report person's report says so the very last thing about this case is that on tuesday this is from the missing persons report on tuesday may 31st 2016 someone named michael contacted the collier county sheriff's department about information regarding terrence williams and felipe santos and when the investigating officer was able to get in touch with this michael person He says that it is common knowledge that deputies uh, used to take people to the Everglades where they were never seen again. Hmm. And that is something, like I said, I periodically check in on a couple of disappearance and cases that I found really interesting. And I had not heard this before. And this is actually something that's mentioned in the Wikipedia page for this, too. Um, and this is what you and I talked about, because I'd never heard about this before. Yeah, you brought this up, and I was like, wait, that sounds like a Starlight Tour. Yeah, I'd never heard of a Starlight Tour before. So, <laughs> interestingly enough, this next part is from a Canadian, series of Canadian cases. Mm-hmm. So, and I heard some of this on the Criminal Podcast. They actually have an episode called Starlight Tours. Oh, geez. And I had actually looked up and done some research on this before. There's a lot of stuff on, there's a page on this on Wikipedia, and then there's a bunch of, like, news articles on it as well that I checked out, and I'm going to share one of those at the end of this. But um, the majority of this case kind of became exposed in the year 2000 when a newspaper reporter who worked for the Canadian broadcast um, system there, discovered the story about a 30-year-old who was found frozen in Canada, and there had been no investigation on the case because it was not violent and there was no signs of foul play. Okay. The man's name was Lawrence Wagner, and he was a First Nations member. So in Canada, um, they don't have native americans obviously because right. it's canada so they're called first nations members and they're mm-hmm. also called aboriginals mm-hmm. or natives they call them a couple of different things that are a little bit different than how we categorize them here in the u.s but um february 3rd was when the body was found frozen to death in Jesus. saskatoon canada so um, okay the star phoenix newspaper reporter who was working on this case right after christmas started looking into this and discovered that the body of this young man was found out by the city landfill in the southwest part of the city that is pretty isolated. Um, They kind of took the angle that they were going to investigate this case and create sort of a cautionary tale about getting drunk and trying to walk home in the middle of the Canadian winter. 
uh-huh. because that's when they found him in the middle of the Canadian winter and up uh-huh. in that area of Canada. It gets very, very cold. Just as a yeah. point of reference, my mother lives in Alaska and it is the same climate and the same, um, what do they call it, latitude as this particular area. And it gets on average between 20 and 60 degrees below zero. Holy so cow. in the middle of the winter, if you step outside without a coat, without mittens, without your face covered, your face will begin to freeze within seconds. Your eyelashes will freeze together. Frostbite is a very, very real risk. And you can get frostbite within minutes and you can die in a very short period of time because it and, is just so cold. And they're saying this guy went out drunk, which is already a, yes, so, a central nervous system depressant. Going to make you more t-shirt on. colder and just... yeah bros okay yeah sure thing and they thought you know he was just drunk and like he didn't know what was going on and this is his bad like this is a cautionary tale don't drink and try to walk home mm-hmm. but the reporter is noticing that this guy was found in this really kind of obscure and isolated area that people don't normally walk around in and just kind of hang out in it's mm-hmm. people aren't there and this particular young man was a social work student in saskatoon the city police, while investigating the story, sort of were looking into this as well, and they got the editor got an anonymous tip that the police were dropping off First Nations or Canadian Natives people off on the outskirts of town when they thought they were causing trouble and didn't want to deal with them. And they didn't want to do the paperwork. So much like Officer Calkins, they uh-huh. did not want to do a bunch of paperwork and get a bunch of different things that were going to take their time up. So what they would do is they would pick these young men up. And there was also a record of some young women having this happen to them as well. And put them in the police car, drive them outside of town, drop them off and wash their hands of the whole thing. And then this guy ends up dying because yes. it's the middle of winter. Yeah. He had been missing, reported missing three days earlier when the newspaper investigators started interviewing the family members, though. They spoke to his aunt, who reported that on the night he disappeared, Lawrence had knocked on her door and was super drunk. He was also, she thought, perhaps under the influence of some drugs. He was dressed very inappropriately for the freezing cold temperatures in just jeans and a t-shirt. And he was yelling, pizza, pizza! Hmm. So she thought he was you know, inebriated, incapacitated and something Mm -hmm. of that nature. And she could not get him to leave. So she called the police. And when she called the police, they said that other people had already called their police hotline and that the police officers reporting to this case were on their way. So at that point, the reporter knew that Lawrence had been apprehended that night and had been in police custody. He hadn't just walking away on his own and disappeared by trying to walk home. Right. Mr. Wagner was finally discovered in a super remote area that was mostly industrial by a power plant. And the reporter noted that no one walked out there in that area, especially in the evening in the winter months when the temperature was freezing cold and stayed pretty much brutally cold the entire winter. So the reporter then starts digging a little bit farther and finds another First Nations man who had also died in that same area. Oh, geez. Rodney Nastis had been found in that exact same location on January 29th, which is literally like just days Another earlier. Coincidence. Yeah. And according to the reporter, this seemed very, very suspicious that two First Nations men would be found frozen to death in the same place in yeah. the same week. And why hadn't the police investigated this? Why were they both deemed accidental right. deaths? February 4th, a third guy comes forward with a frightening story. 
He says that he had been dropped off in a similar spot outside of town, but he had managed to make it home alive. So he's living proof that the police were Uh-oh. doing this. Daryl Knight, a 33-year-old First Nations member, was kind of a, a known guy in this neighborhood who had been picked up on numerous occasions for intoxication, violence, aggressive, abusive behavior. He was very problematic and known in the community, and they were used to picking mm-hmm. him up. The normal process was to pick him up and throw him in the jail downtown. He would spend the night. They would release him the next day when he was sober. And Yeah, like a drunk pattern. tank. Yeah. Yeah. January 28th, very early in the morning, Daryl had been having hanging out with his uncle. When they got into a fight, police were called to come pick up Mr. Knight. And outside, he became very drunk and abusive. Daryl says that he was handcuffed and unceremoniously dropped into the back of a police cruiser. He was sober enough to realize that they weren't taking him to the police station, though, because they were driving away. God, how terrifying would that realization yeah, be? They were driving away from the police station, and the car's occupants suddenly were very, very silent. Oh, no. So, of course, Daryl is like, what's going on? Something nefarious is going on here. They're going to beat me. They're going to abuse me. They're going to mm-hmm. do something horrible to me. Can you imagine? Like, literally, can no. you imagine? That would be horrifying. And what um, do you do? Like, you you can't prepare for it? You can't do anything no. about it? I mean, you just... And this guy's on, like, jeans and a t-shirt. Like, he's not prepared Gosh. for anything in that time period outside. The officers then allegedly drove Daryl to a super remote spot and kicked him out of the car. He then voiced concerns at that time about freezing to death, and one of the officers told him it wasn't their problem as they drove off. Wow. So Daryl thought he was going to die and realized he had heard rumors about this sort of thing before. And it had just kind of been whispers in the First Nations community that this was Mm -hmm. going on. But now he's like, this is true. This is happening to me. This is a real thing. Yeah, I wonder how many people this had happened to that didn't come forward before this. I don't even know. But in the First Nations community, there had long been stories about something called a starlight tour. Again where police pick up a suspect who is drunk and belligerent, troublesome, etc. And then because of the trouble, the time involved in the paperwork, this man or woman would have been taken to the outskirts of town and dropped off instead of taken into jail and charged. Mm. This was considered an open secret and police expected the person to walk it off or cool down. Although it's the middle of the freaking winter, it's freezing cold, right. and like common sense would tell you, this person's gonna die if I leave them out. And you're here taking them an cold. unreasonable distance outside of town. Exactly. Yeah. And we all know that when people are super drunk and they're dropped off in freezing temperatures, the likelihood of them making it back is pretty greatly reduced. Yeah. The allegations were that the police had done this on countless occasions, and people had actually died, and they just attributed it to accidental death, accidental freezing, etc. Of course, because it's a vulnerable population. So they just don't look into it. And many of the members of the First Nation believed that they had complained about this, they had spoken about this, but no one would listen to them. Wow. Around the year 2000, this particular policy slash process slash practice is known to have been around for years, but the general public was just finding out about it. Mm Mm-hmm. And usually older officers were the ones involved. The police began to investigate this particular case, and they wanted to figure out who was working at the time of these incidences, because now the media has a hold of this, mm-hmm. and it's starting to like catch fire. February 7, 2000, two officers, Dan Hatchin and Ken Munson, admit they picked up Daryl Knight and dropped him off in a remote area. So they're saying, okay, it's a little bit, I think, like the other case. Mm-hmm. 
um, where he's like, okay, wait, my memory was wrong then. I I did, but he was fine and everything was going to be okay. And this is the one that survived? Yes. Okay. Um, So what do you think happened to these two officers who admitted they picked this guy up and dropped him off in a remote area? Suspended with pay? Exactly. They were suspended three days later with pay. The police chief announced that there was an investigation being launched into the circumstances behind Rodney Nastis and Lawrence Wagner's deaths. And another one would be launched into Daryl Knight's claims. Saskatchewan police called in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police at that point to take over. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police are like our federal police. Mm -hmm. It's their equivalent of that. And they want to know how long this stuff has been going on and how many potential victims there are out there. So reporters, meanwhile, are like shuffling through old articles and looking at archives to see if there were other cases that they could link to this because they mm-hmm. believe that this was reported previously, but it was mistaken for sort of an accidental sort of a death. Right. And it was obvious to everyone at this point that socially and economically disadvantaged people did not matter to the authorities. And this was just proof positive right yeah. in their face that this was going on. Reporters started going through the archives looking for freezing deaths and First Nations deaths in remote areas to try to figure out, like, how long this was going on. Um, They also went back to 1991, where a young man named Neil Stonechild uh, had passed away as well. And the family was concerned that their teen's death was very suspicious, and he was another young First Nations man. The Saskatoon police were under suspicion even more at that point uh, because the police force was clearly sort of they didn't care it looked like they didn't care about first nations members Mm -hmm. less than the the force was less than one percent first nation and even less women so there were very very few minorities um, which makes it even more problematic but both neil and his brother jake were first nations members and well known within their communities because they had had multiple police encounters for theft drinking breaking probation and just causing mayhem and trouble in the neighborhoods. They'd both been locked up various times. I believe Neil was about 17 and Jake was about 14. So they were Mm -hmm. clearly youths. They'd both served various points of time in youth detention facilities. But both the investigating police and the reporters found it odd that Neil would be found dead without his brother, with only one shoe on in frigid temperatures. His blood alcohol level had also been determined to be well above the legal limit, and his cause of death was determined to be hypothermia. So these two brothers were so well known for being together everywhere that they're like, why was this guy out on his own with one shoe on? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. He had been last seen five days before he was found frozen to death, and the police report, which was about 25 to 27 pages, concluded that Neil died by wandering off that he had intended to turn himself in at the correctional center for some old warrants and had just become lost and died. So this young 17-year-old boy is wandering around out looking for a detention center to turn himself into in a drunken state for old warrants. Yeah. It just doesn't make any kind of sense. Not only that, but he was a youth offender And they get housed in a different place than the adult prison. And he was walking towards the adult prison to turn himself in. Like, who does that? Nobody. That's the answer. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if he's already been picked up and arrested multiple times before, he would know that. It's not like he's like... 
It makes no, no I don't sense. know where to go. Not only that, but Neil's mom yeah. said she couldn't get any information from the police and they wouldn't even give her her son's belongings back. Jesus. So she's basically saying, as a First Nations member, I basically felt invisible. Like, police didn't give a crap about me or my son's case, which, and, not surprising. Yeah, and that's, I was going to say, like, that's not at all new. Um, no. The Canadian authorities and Canadian government have long had issues. There's a history. Yeah, there's yeah. absolutely a history. Yeah. And people outside the police were saying, if this was a white kid or a kid from an affluent family, this case would have been treated dramatically different. Mm-hmm. And I do not disagree. Now, 10 years after Neil Stonechild's death, reporters wanted to get the case attention again, so they started running stories about Neil Stonechild again, implying that foul play was involved and mm-hmm. urging police to reopen the case. They urged the police as well to start looking into these starlight tours and other mm-hmm. men's cases. However, when the inquest for the other men were completed, the juries found that the men died of hypothermia, but they couldn't determine the circumstances leading to the deaths of the men. This is what happens when you don't fill out paperwork. Like, I, this is why I think, to go back to Steve Calkins, this is why I think he did not fill out an incident report in the Terrence yeah. Williams. As if there's not... An incident report, then it's their word against his. Exactly. And, of course, he's not around to give his opinion or testify or anything. So they're always going to trust the officer. So Daryl Knight's case was heard by a jury of seven men and five women. They found, and note these are all white people. Okay. They found Dan Hutchin and Ken Munson guilty of unlawful confinement. And that was it. Hmm. He was sentenced to eight months in a low-security correctional facility. No criminal charges were filed. What criminal charges could be filed? Like, not, I mean, I don't know Canada's laws. I don't, I mean, you don't either, but, like... Well, I mean, there could be, like, kidnapping or unlawful confinement in, like, a a criminal sense. Instead of just a civil sense or just punishment as part of a police investigation. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. But the federal police started uh, reviewing Neil Stonechild's case in light of all the media attention. And no one could find the police report, surprise, surprise, from Mm. the original investigation back in 1990. Isn't that weird? Interestingly enough, the file had been purged mysteriously. The police claimed that routine purges of all files happened every 10 years or so for files that were 10 years or older to clear space because the station wasn't big enough for all those Mm -hmm. paper files, which I guess, but you should back them up with some sort of either a photograph or a microfiche back then. Mm -hmm. Like there should be a backup. Like you can't just burn, torch, get rid of files like that. 2001, one of the investigators finds a copy of Neil Stonechild's police investigation because evidently one of the police officers at the station had made a copy of it and it was sort of against regulations for him to do it. I think he was like a a normal like officer, a police officer, not like a detective sort Mm -hmm. of a thing. And he wasn't supposed to even have access to those files, but he was a First Nations member, one of the very limited number Mm. in that particular department. And he was concerned. The case just sort of triggered something in his brain where he was like, this needs more attention than Mm -hmm. it's getting. So he had made a copy of it and was doing investigations on it and just happened to have that copy of it to present to the RCMP. February 2003, the Justice Minister of Saskatchewan announced an official inquiry into Neil Stonechild's case, and this started September 2003. There was 43 days of testimony during that time period, but it was very hard to determine before cameras were involved what actually happened, because again, it's essentially there's no recorded cases, and the only one that was involved is two police officers. Again, it was two 
and this young man. So it's essentially their word against his, and he's not around to give his version of the story. It's kind of harder when it's two police officers because they can coordinate and they can back each other up, and you get more... um, Authority. It's definitely weighed differently when you've got two police officers that can back each other up. Because the police denied they had any contact with Neil that night. But Neil's friends actually saw him in the police cruiser. So they testified, hey, this is not right. We saw Mm -hmm. him. And interesting, but Neil's friend's testimony wasn't included in the police report. Or his family member's testimony. They saw cuts and bruises on Neil's face and wrists. During the funeral when they got the body back for burial. So there was lots of blowback from the police, though, who said that the officer who presented this report should have kept his mouth shut. Like, they immediately yep. attacked him. Like, Protect how dare own. you, like, make us look bad and that sort of a thing. There was a justice report that came out on this, and the report said the two officers had Neil in their car that night and that he had been dishonest about it. The officers lost their jobs, but there was not enough evidence for criminal charges. Mm -hmm. So many people had some pretty mixed feelings about this case, as you can imagine, because two men in the police department basically took the fall and there were many potential police officers that were actually doing this. This had not resolved any racial issues. They weren't really taking steps by, by two men losing their jobs. Like, what is that really right. going to do? Right. It's not, they're not addressing the systemic issue. No. And what came out of this was the recommendations for race education, for more police training on racial issues, and for them to seek out more minority candidates, especially Aboriginal people for mm-hmm. police services. Because many people believe that investigations would have been different if it wasn't First Nations victims. And I could not agree more. Mm-hmm. June 2003, the current police chief apologized on behalf of the Saskatoon police force and claimed that he knew there were probably other times. He pointed to one case in 1976 Whoa. where an officer was disciplined for similar actions with a First Nations woman, but they refused to acknowledge or mention any other cases when this potentially happened. And in 2016, students that were doing research on this particular case reported that Starlight Tours, the section was in, on Wikipedia about the police department that talked about Starlight Tours had been deleted <gasps> from the police department uh, Wikipedia page. So the research was extremely limited as well. They found that it was very, very hard to find any information on this. And the police claimed they couldn't figure out who took the information off the Wikipedia page, even though they narrowed it down to a server in the police department. They conducted an investigation and they couldn't determine who did it. So they basically, they found the computer, but not the user. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And they claimed that all the recommendations that were offered to them through that judiciary report had been implemented. They have had more training, education, recruiting, etc. And they support the call for independent oversight bodies to look into the police departments in that particular region. So it's interesting. Like, and then I found this other article that I thought was pretty interesting as well. Because I was kind of curious, like, when I read about this case being limited and Uh information not being able to be found on this particular issue, I was kind of curious as to what was out there. Uh So I found this article on this website called mcleans.ca, and it was called New Light on Saskatoon Starlight Tours. 
An attempt to erase reference to the deadly practice for, from the police force's Wikipedia page stirs up dark memories and new questions. On January 28, 2002, police officers drove Daryl Knight five kilometers outside of Saskatoon and abandoned him in negative 22 degrees Celsius weather Jesus. with just a t-shirt and a jean jacket. The incident was part of a series of starlight tours, a practice in which officers were said to have picked up drunk or rowdy people at night and then dropped them off in the dead of winter. At least three indigenous people in Saskatoon were suspected to have died this way, beginning with a 17-year-old Neil Stonechild in 1990. Although Knight survived, he moved to British Columbia and has never returned. In Mm -hmm. Saskatoon, I found it very hard to recover from and move on from what they did to me that January night, he says, typing a message to his sister because he still has trouble hearing and communicating due to the trauma from the incident. Whoa. Right? He's now 49. I've never received an apology from the police for what was done to me, he says. Two officers went to prison for eight months for Knight's incident. His case eventually led to an inquiry in 2003 into Stonechild's death that made international news. Two officers were fired for Stonechild's death, and the police chief apologized to Stonechild's mother. Yet, in 2016, there appears to have been an effort to erase this ugly, very prominent chapter from the police force's history. Last Wednesday, an 18-year-old student named Addison Herman discovered that information about the tours was deleted from the Saskatoon Police Commission's Wikipedia page, and the IP address of the computer that executed the change was registered with the commission itself. It was a pretty bold move on their part, says Herman. The police admit someone using a police computer did something to the Wikipedia entry, but haven't specified anything further. Racism in Saskatchewan's justice system remains a topic of intense scrutiny, As McLean's reported on a February cover story, Indigenous students in Saskatchewan are more likely to be stopped by police whether or not they're engaged in or close to an illegal activity than non-Indigenous students, and Indigenous people receive harsher sentences than non-Indigenous people in Saskatchewan. Priscilla Setti, a professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Saskatoon who works with exiting Aboriginal gang members, says the problem they face are endless. Mm -hmm. What are the problems, she says, referring to poverty on reserves, because they are on reserves there as well, Lasting trauma from residential schools and in the justice system, stark jail conditions with recently privatized food services, leading inmates to start hunger strikes. People are literally stockpiled into a jail cell together, she says. Saskatoon declared a year of reconciliation last June, which is really interesting. We might have to have a whole other episode about that. There are attempts in Canada mm-hmm. to um, kind of provide reparations to natives mm-hmm. in that particular area. But this happened in Winnipeg this January. They've tried very hard to take the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, which is, again, the recommendations from the government after investigating this on how to remedy this situation with the natives in that particular region. Um, the commitments include Aboriginal cultural awareness, training for all government employees, including police officers. The mayor was very disappointed to hear about the Wikipedia deletion. As soon as something like this happens, says Brown, you have to hit the reset button and say, what more do we need to do? Lecturers on Indigenous Studies at the University of Saskatchewan say the city needs to ensure training isn't merely cultural education, but rather what he calls an anti-oppressive training that challenges people's own prejudices. They'll say it's an anti-racist week, but really it's having a multicultural day, says Henry. If you see two Aboriginal people fighting, they're criminals being criminals. On the other side, if you see two white boys playing, they're boys being boys. Hmm. When the two Starlight Tour guides were sentenced to eight months in prison for Knight's unlawful confinement, the maximum sentence was 10 years, and they only got eight months. Wow. And no officers were criminally charged for the deaths of the other victims. By comparison, though, an indigenous man in Saskatoon was sentenced to four months in January 2016 for falsely reporting a starlight tour. So he got he half the wore- time that the people that actually took yeah. someone off. Got yeah. it. 
cool, cool, yeah. cool, cool, cool. Yeah. And the Royal Canadian Mounted Police have admitted that racism exists in the justice system. Last year, the commissioner, Bob Paulson, told the Assembly of First Nations, I understand they're racist in my police force. I don't want them to be in my police force. Yet in response, the Saskatoon police denied the practice of carding, which is performing street checks on a targeted demographic, often Aboriginal people, or racism influencing police behavior. To deny it is just outrageous, says one of the Cree tribal members. If I go into a store, I'm followed around. However, the police say they're making an effort. The department began a peacekeeper cadets program in 2014, which engages officers with 28 indigenous elementary school students to encourage culture, structure discipline, and encourage them to play sports and stay in school. The police chief meets with First Nations elders periodically and has awarded them a police badge while they have presented him with the honor of an Eagle staff. We've done a lot to repair our reputation and will continue to do so, says Kelsey Frazier, a spokesman for the Saskatoon Police Commission. Ever since Night Starlight Tour, his entire family has been living in a reserve outside the city. Although his mother says Saskatoon is her home, she won't return. I didn't think anybody could be that cold-blooded, she says. I don't trust the cops, period. I would never go to them if I was desperately in need because they would never, never take my word for it. Knight says he'll keep away from the province. I like the mountains. I find it more peaceful here, he says, typing the message to his sister. The past abuse so easily erased from one corner of the internet plagues Knight every time he tries to hear, speak, or sleep. Wow. This was very disturbing to me. Like, just reading that. It's it's interesting that here I am talking about a case in Flor- in South Florida, and it's, you know, a similar situation that happens, that's been happening in Canada. And the years Thousands of, of miles this, away. Yeah, but and the years of this overlap. I mean, the, the original one that you started talking about was, what, 2000? Mm-hmm. And this, you know, and, and... But it started, they said, in the 70s. Yeah. Like, and probably before that as well. Right. And that's why, like, I, it's it's clearly a very widespread thing, even though we're only talking about this in two specific places. But these are two very disparate places. These are, you couldn't yeah. be more different than Saskatoon, Canada, and Naples, Florida. And yeah, the fact that and it's And I think happening... we tend to think that it's, like, an issue that's sort of stuck in the u.s the right. u.s kind of has the corner on racism and like the situation with the police but it's clear to me that this is like a global issue yeah yeah and it's i mean it makes me wonder like i hadn't even heard of a star starlight tour until i started kind of going back into this terrence williams and felipe santos disappearances and right. then to hear about this happening in canada for so long how long has this been going on that we don't know about right you know absolutely and it's been covered up it's been erased it's been pretty much ignored yeah even though people of color have been talking about it for decades Mm -hmm. it's horrifying yeah so it's a very very hard thing to hear especially when you come from white culture um but being that my family is canadian like uh, I i think we tend to think that canadians are really like diplomatic and they're chill and they don't well, do and they're so wrong nice. and they respect braces and they do all, but that's <laughs> clearly not the case either yeah so do you have anything else you want to add i don't um like i said we'll post to all of that information um that's available on the, the collier county sheriff's department website if you want to go read for yourself the yeah. terrence williams missing persons uh, report is 180 pages. The Felipe Santos missing persons report is 110 pages, so it is very yeah. long. But all of the polygraph um, 
uh, audio files are available on there as well. So we'll link um, to all the resources. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of them on this. Yeah. Although the reports said that there wasn't a lot of information on this when I did an internet search for it, there's like there's Wikipedia Good. pages, there's news articles, there's all kinds of stuff on it, and. This is the first podcast when I listened to the criminal podcast and heard the Starlight Tours episode. Like, that's the first time I'd ever, like, heard about it. Mm-hmm. And I listened to that. I think, like, I think it came out, like, a year ago or, yeah. like, maybe six or eight months ago. But I'd never heard any other podcasts or stories or reports about it before. So, like, this yeah. is crazy to me that it would stay hidden that long. At least hidden in the circles that we are in. Yeah, but you know? in true crime circles. I mean, right. the thing is, we we hear about a lot of stuff just because we've been interested in true crime for a long right. time, and I'd never heard about this. I've heard a lot of really random, like, obscure cases, yeah. but never about this. Yeah. Although, it's not surprising to me. It really isn't. Yeah. It's horrifying, and it's an absolutely terrifying thing to think that this is happening, but it's not surprising. Right. Yeah, I agree. But in any case, this is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please, please, please send us an email. Like, we're more than happy to address that, to answer questions, to talk about your concerns. You can also send us an email if you want to suggest show topics or if you want to correct us. We're more than happy to take that into account. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We put that as well as our show notes and the resources and the references that we use into the show notes as well. Social media, Darcy? Yeah, we are at the BFD Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And again, we put all of our research and links and everything in there as well. And if you want to reach out to us there, you can find us there as well. Yes, and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases, as well as ones that are super obscure. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.